First Peter chapter three today. We're starting in the, the third chapter. Peter is continuing to teach Christians how we are to live this new life that we've been called to within the structures of our old relationships. So we've already discussed governing authority. Last week we talked about bosses, employees, those sorts of things. We're going to talk today about husbands and wives and how they respond to each other. In coming weeks, we're going to talk about how we relate within the church body as well. And so Peter really covers a lot of ground here. So I want to point us back. You can look back at verse 12 and verse 15. These are our our key and connecting verses. And they remind Christians that our conduct, as we're living in these old relationships, these old structures, our conduct in them matters. In fact, they speak volumes, how we respond to authority. Last week, Peter says, even unjust authority, how, how we respond in those moments matters a lot. And in the end of chapter 2, he said something unique happens when a Christian perseveres in the midst of unjust suffering. It's not just any suffering, right? Because some of the suffering, Peter says, we bring on ourselves, And we mentioned this last week. You know, if you do something wrong at work and you get penalized for it, you you, you should be. Same kids at school. You cheat on a test, you get penalized, you should. That's not unjust suffering. That's just that you deserve that. What Peter's getting at is when it's unjust, when you don't deserve what's happening to you and you persevere under it, that's when something special happens and he talks about it. And he says that you are following in the footsteps of Jesus. You show the world a picture of Christ. If you were with us for our movie yesterday about Sabina Wormbrand, that was exemplified in that movie. And she hugged the person that likely killed her family and said, the heart of the gospel is forgiveness. The only way you have that attitude is if Christ is working and living in you. And it's the same for all of us. We may not all be faced with that situation, but some of us don't have great bosses. And sometimes we get unfairly blamed or treated unfairly. And we need to have that same kind of thought process rolling through our minds. The heart of the gospel is forgiveness. How I behave, how I react and respond matters because I bear the name of Christ. In verse 21 of chapter 2, talked about how Jesus suffered more than anyone, but it says that he suffered, he did it for you. He went to the tree. He took the nails, the whips, the thorns, death. He did it for you, for your sake, it says. And so when we really... When Christians really latch on to that and see it for what it is, we, we have to live differently. We're, we're not content to live the same way any longer. How can you be comfortable with the lies that you're hearing when you know the truth? How can you be content to dwell in darkness when you've seen the light? You won't be. You can't be. Christians are to live differently in the world that God is making And we live differently in relation to the governing authorities. We work different in relation to our bosses. And we live differently with our spouses, even with spouses who don't know the Lord. And that's what Peter is really getting at in our text for the day, the first seven verses of 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's read them together and then ask God to bless his word. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 1. Likewise, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands 
so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Lord, there's a lot here that we need to learn from, especially us husbands and wives. And there may be some who are of that age but aren't married. There may be some that aren't yet old enough to think about getting married. And yet, Lord, this applies to them as well because not only may they be married one day, Lord, but this obviously sets our eyes on Jesus and his bride of the church. And so this has implications for every one of us, whether we're married or not, but specifically to those who have a husband or who have a wife. Lord, may we really take this to heart. And may we really change where needed. Do that work in us. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Just thinking about the picture that Peter is painting and that we've just read through, we need to be really um, just kind of honest about it. Our view of culture in our westernized, Americanized, you know, 2022 sense of marriage probably looks and looked a lot different than the marriages that Peter was talking about. Now, that doesn't change what he says or mean that we, or excuse us from listening to these things, but we need to acknowledge that there is a big difference. Specifically, for a woman to adopt a different religion than her husband would have been maybe not unthinkable, but very unlikely, very unusual for that sort of thing to happen. And so Peter writes to wives who are married to to guys who don't share the same faith, same religion. Wives were hearing the word, probably like the husbands were, but they were obeying it. Their hearts were changed. They put their faith in Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says that some husbands, they hear the word, right? You can't disobey the word unless you've heard it. So they hear the word and they they do not obey it. And so this leaves their wives in a difficult position. Peter's sensitive to it, and so he's writing this to them. And and the truth is that wives in that kind of a situation, they could feel isolated. They could feel very alone. And so Peter encourages them to relate to their unbelieving husbands with humility and gentleness. But Peter begins this section with the word likewise. So likewise, obviously, we need to look, he's saying, just like I said these things at the end of chapter 2, in the same way, in a similar way, this is what I'm saying to you wives. So there's still carryover. I don't want us to think that there's not. There's still carryover from everything that Peter has said before as far as submitting to authority, as far as living out your faith in the midst of difficult circumstances. And what Peter says to wives is similar. He's saying, submit to governing authorities. 
submit to your boss in the workplace. And now he says, wives, submit to your own husbands. I think the biggest similarity between those things is actually the condition for submission. There isn't any. Did you notice that? Peter doesn't say, hey, submit to the emperor as long as he's a good guy. He doesn't say, as long as your boss is being nice to you, do what he says. And he doesn't say, treat your husband with respect if you agree with him. So the condition for submitting is the same in all three. There isn't one. If that's the only way, if that was the only way, wives, if the only way you could respect your husbands is if you agreed with them all the time, you wouldn't agree with them. And if the only way we could submit to our bosses is if we liked them all the time, we probably wouldn't ever submit to them. Same way with governing authority. It can't, that can't be what Peter is saying. I don't think that it is. He doesn't list a condition like that at all. Now, I'll just put this caveat in there again, as I've been kind of continuing to point out. There may be times when, when citizens, when employees, when even wives cannot do what they're being told to do because they submit themselves as Christians in those situations. They submit themselves to a higher authority than the one that we're discussing, higher than husbands, higher than employees, employers, higher than the emperor. We submit, we bow our knee to God and God alone. And so if there's any discrepancy, if there's a choice to be made, do I obey God or do I obey, obey this authority? We always go with God. And I'll just say this here at the start too. Nowhere in these verses or anywhere else in all of Scripture is taught that women are to be doormats. If those are thoughts that are rolling through your head, look at the life of Jesus. Look at his ministry. It was directed towards ladies a lot of times. And for his DNA, honoring them in the way that he did was scandalous in some ways and certainly very revolutionary. So when Peter talks about wives submitting to their unbelieving husbands, he isn't saying that they need to ignore or even excuse any kind of abuse in the home. Domestic violence, abuse of any kind, it should be stopped. Period. End of story. There's no place for it in the home. And if it is happening, if physical or sexual abuse is happening, the abuser should be removed from the home and likely put in jail. Because this is an affront not only to them as God's creation, as God's people, but a poor reflection of Jesus as the bridegroom. If that sort of thing is happening and the abuser isn't able to take, be taken out of the home, those in danger should be taken out of the home until there's a process set up where they can be cared for and so where it won't happen again. And so when Peter says that husbands may be one without a word, that phrase without a word, I just want to be clear, is that he's not talking about a wife remaining silent under abuse. It's not what he's saying. The situation Peter has in mind here is when a believing wife is living with an unbelieving husband who doesn't obey the word and who might possibly oppose the gospel, where he might actually oppose what she is trying to tell him. This kind of a lady might very well be a first-generation Christian. Think about that. This, this was revolutionary news, the gospel message. And so these ladies who are hearing this, they may not have the structure at home of, of believing family to support them in this kind of a marriage. And so Peter's sensitive to this kind of a situation, and he writes to them to encourage them. Ladies here might be tempted to ask questions like, well, 
do I stay with my husband now that we, you know, don't, our lives, our hearts, they're not connected in the same way anymore. Am I supposed to stay with them? Or maybe they're asking, well, should I continue to submit to someone who isn't submitting to God? That's still a relevant question that people ask today. What does Peter say? What does the inspired word of God say? Look at the end of verse 1 and verse 2. That they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So the Christian wife in that kind of a situation wasn't to leave. Paul makes this clear in his writings on, on husbands and wives and marriage. They're not supposed to leave. Peter says that their conduct was meant to adorn the gospel to their husbands. Adorn means to make something beautiful or attractive. So by a, a believing wife's pure and gentle conduct, they display an attractive gospel. This is what Peter is saying. And some husbands may be won to the faith by it. Peter believed that their respectful attitude and that kind of lifestyle would be so influential that even some unbelieving husbands would be turned to the gospel and won by it. Now, this might seem like Peter is asking an awful lot of these ladies. And to be honest, he is. Maybe you don't have to imagine very far to put yourself in that position. How would you respond? This is a lot to ask, but I do want to point out that this isn't something that he's only asking believing wives in this situation to do. Peter expected the same kind of behavior from all Christians. If you've got your notes, you can look at what I've put down there. You can follow with me. Look back at verse 13 of chapter 1. This is to all Christians. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You can't keep behaving the way that you once did. 117, conduct yourselves with fear, respectfully, Peter says. Verse 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Chapter 2, verse 1, put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. This is to all Christians here. Chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, pure, respectable, worthy. Chapter 2, verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should silence the ignorance of evil people. Chapter 2, verse 17, honor everyone. That's kind of that blanket statement that Peter gives. And we know how difficult this can be in sometimes. It's hard, some points, to honor those in authority over you, whether that's your husband, your boss, your president, your government official, whoever it might be. Sometimes it's hard to do this, and I think this is really getting at the heart of what Peter is saying. And I think it's really what Jesus is getting at in the whole Sermon on the Mount. If you want to flip back to Matthew chapter 5, it's about two chapters long. We're not going to read much of it, but you can just look through as I, as I share some of these things, this is, I think, Jesus' point in all of this. He starts off the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, but then he goes from right into that, into describing how Christians are salt and light. They change the culture around them. Right? And he says, no one's foolish enough to put a basket over a lamp because that defeats the purpose of the lamp. You put it high up so that everybody can see with it. With his light. 
that that's what Christians are supposed to be. We're supposed to be noticeably different so that people see light, see the light of Christ shining in us. And then from there, Jesus starts to talk about things. Maybe you can identify with a couple of these things. I'm just going to hit on what Jesus talks about in his sermon on the Mount. Anger, lust, divorce, making promises, revenge, giving money, how you pray, how you fast, feeling anxious, judging others, how you treat other people, including those who you would consider your enemies. Jesus talked about all of these things and he flipped them all on their head. Read through Matthew 5 verse 7 if you haven't before. Not right now, later, after lunch, before your nap. Read through Matthew 5 verse 7. What Jesus says is revolutionary. In fact, at at the end of Matthew chapter 7, people couldn't believe what Jesus was saying. They could not believe it. It says that they were astonished at what he was teaching. You mean I'm supposed to love my enemy? You mean even if I get angry in my heart, it's, a, it's sin, it's murder? If I lust with my eyes, I've committed adultery in my heart? Are you serious? Like this was revolutionary stuff that Jesus was saying. The people were astonished. And what he's saying is that followers of Christ, we don't respond to anything the way that we once did. There is not a hidden space of your life that isn't touched by the cleansing and renewing power of the Spirit in your life. We don't respond to anything the same way. And this is what Peter is getting at in his first letter. Governing authorities, bosses, employees, wives, husbands, how you relate in this new, with this new life that God has given you is totally different than it used to be. It's pretty evident now with what he's telling to married couples. I said before that the conduct of Christians, Christian wives was meant to adorn the gospel before their husbands. What does that really mean? Peter continues in verses 3 through 6. Here's verses 3 and 4. Don't let your adorning be external, braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So, we got to ask the question, is, is Peter saying that braiding your hair and wearing gold jewelry and wearing nice clothes wrong? Is that a sin? I, I don't think so. I don't think at all. Unless those things are used as a disguise to cover what's in your heart. If we're using the outward trappings, the outward apparel, apparel appearance, um, if we're using those things to hide what is truly the case of our heart, then they're wrong. Peter's simply just telling these ladies, he's saying, look, don't caught up. Don't get caught up into thinking that the only way you're beautiful in God's sight is by all of these outward things. Don't worry about those things. What should be more important? What does he say? Verse 4, a gentle and quiet spirit. So more than the maker of the dress that you're wearing, ladies, more than the brand of makeup that you use, more than the hairstyle that you have. What does God say is more important than these things? A gentle and a quiet spirit. Peter says that those are the things that really matter to God. 
And our culture and the world puts those at the very bottom of the list. In fact, those are scoffed at and laughed at in our culture today. They're seen as weak. And God has exalted these things and said these are what's really important. So I think maybe we need to go back and read Matthew 5-7 through and understand how Jesus just flips everything around because Peter's doing the same thing here. What our culture says is lowly and weak, God says is actually what's beautiful for a lady. He calls it, in fact, an imperishable beauty. Now, obviously, what you wear is important in the sense that really both men and women can bring dishonor to the name of Jesus by wearing inappropriate attire. And so he's not saying that that's insignificant altogether. He's just saying it's not important in the grand scheme of things. So whether you wear a Walmart shirt or Gucci, is that a name, expensive name brand for a lady? Uh, Whatever, it it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. Because all that stuff perishes. So what Peter is getting at here is a phrase you guys have probably heard before. Beauty is more than just skin deep. So married ladies, if you desire your attitude and the conduct of your life to be precious in the sight of God, and I would add, beautiful in the sight of your husband, Peter says, what brings it about? A gentle and quiet spirit. And he says it's a beauty that will not fade. Gentle here means meek, means humble. Quiet means peaceable, undisturbed. It's almost like uh, this, this woman is able to sit, and even though there's chaos happening all around, they're content. They know what they're doing, whose they are, and they don't have to get up and address everything. I think meekness is a really good word here because it describes a person who shows patient restraint. Meekness is not weakness. It's a person who shows patient restraint. They aren't quick to argue A meek person is not quick to fight or lash out. A meek person is able to remain calm and subdued even when being provoked. This may very well have been the case for some of these wives that Peter's writing to. Imperishable, incorruptible beauty is seen in the gentle and quiet spirit. But that doesn't mean that a woman should never give her opinion. Peter simply means that a quiet spirit is not a reckless spirit. It's not a volatile kind of a person who's looking for a fight. And Peter gives specific example of this kind of woman. Who does he mention? Verses 5 and 6. He brings up Abraham's wife, Sarah. Now, Sarah surely isn't the only person that we could think of in Israelite history that Peter would be kind of referring to here. Can you think of any others? I'll give you just a moment. What other ladies would this kind of description point to? I think we could maybe think of Leah, maybe Ruth, yeah? Abigail, that's one I hadn't thought of. Esther, Mary, Jesus' mother, Mary, Hannah. There are are even way more than that of, of ladies who had this kind of an attitude But Peter specifically points out Sarah, and I think he points her out because where did Sarah go in her lifetime? 
She started in Haran, right? And then out of the blue, God comes to Abraham and says, you got to go. Take what you have and go. And obviously, Abraham and Sarah had conversations that we don't have recorded in Scripture. But we don't have any kind of indication that she resisted, that she planted her feet and said, I'm not going. You're taking me away from my family. She she went. And not only did she go from, from Haran to Canaan, but she went from Canaan to Egypt and then from Egypt to the land of the Philistines. She followed him all over the place. And in the process, she even, she even called him Lord. Now, understand, she's not putting him in the place of God. That was a, a title of respect, calling him Lord. This means that she submitted to God's authority by submitting to her husband's authority. R.C. Sproul says, When we submit to whatever authority is over us, we're bearing witness to the authority of God himself. We can only properly submit to authority if we understand that by doing so, we're submitting to the Lord. If we refuse to submit to authority, we're refusing to submit to God, and that's a serious matter. Not long ago, in our area, I heard a married woman make a joke about all of this kind of thing. And she said basically that her husband may be the head, but she was the neck the wife is the neck that turned the head. I think that actually comes from uh, that big fat Greek wedding movie. Um, you know, and, and, and people laugh at that, and it's kind of a funny thing. But it, you know, I, I would do. I do wonder: can we imagine reading through the lives of any of these holy women and concluding that that was their attitude? I don't think so. What does God's word say? Notice something else here. Peter says that Sarah submitted to her husband, but it said, but he says that she hoped in God. Sarah trusted God by submitting to Abraham. She respected Abraham, but she trusted God. And I think this goes back to something that I mentioned last week and that we submit to positions of authority, whether that's a parent or a government official or a boss or even in the home, maybe a husband at times. Sometimes a wife for kids. Sarah submitted to Abraham because God had placed him in authority in their house, but she didn't trust Abraham like she trusted God. And it's a good thing too, because if you know the story of Abraham and Sarah, Abraham told her to do some pretty dumb stuff. She went along with it. And Abraham is the one who's going to have to deal with those consequences. But she, the only way that we can really submit to authority over us is when we're first trusting God. That's what I want us to see from that. We're not going to submit to authority if we don't trust that God is going to work our submission out. I don't know that that makes it any easier for us to do that, but it certainly should give us confidence of who's really in charge here. So Peter says that these holy, saintly women, like Sarah, trusted God. So ladies... You are Sarah's children. That's the way Peter puts it. You're following in her steps when you do good like she did and don't fear anything but the Lord. These things can only be said of Sarah because she trusted God more than her husband and she trusted God more than her fears. Then Peter directs his attention to husbands. And he starts out by using the same word as when he started writing to wives. He said, likewise. So, guys... 
we need to throw our minds back to the last couple of chapters and understand authority. Now, I also, in my conversations with Nikki about this text, it was, I kind of noticed how we've got six verses to wives and one verse to guys. Now, some may jump to the conclusion that, you know, more needed to be said to ladies, but I would just say that guys are relatively inept at multitasking and need things boiled down to the bare minimum. And so I think Peter is aiding us in that today, guys. He's keeping it real simple. One verse, that's all you got. But it's no less packed with meaning for husbands. <laughs> Keep it simple? Yeah. Uh, so so here, here it is, guys. Um, Peter's idea puts us back to... to to the authority that we've talked about. And I, I don't want to insinuate, and I certainly don't mean at all, that we equate wives with employees or servants. Please don't hear me saying that. In fact, I would say, husbands, if, if you are intentionally making your wives feel like that, you need to repent. And you need to come to my office and we need to talk. I'm kind of joking, but really I'm not. Because that's not right. What I'm saying is that Paul's point is the same thing that Peter is saying, and it's all in this discussion of authority. Even in slaves and masters, bosses and employees, employees are to treat their bosses like who? Like like God. And bosses are supposed to treat their employees like who? Like their God. Like they are supposed to identify to one another as if they're Christ, because that's who you are submitting to and serving. Husbands, if wives are going to submit to you like they're supposed to submit to Jesus, then you better be living with them in an understanding way. That's what he says in verse 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Have a seat here. So that your prayers may not be hindered. We'll, we'll come back to that phrase in just a moment. How are we as husbands, how are we supposed to live with our wives in an understanding way? My wife made the comment that she doesn't think any husband can actually do this properly. And I would probably say the reason why is because wives don't always know like how to do that themselves. I certainly don't. No, I'm not intending to start a fight. I'm just saying. I have a solution. I have a solution. Can you see the beads of sweat on my brow? I have a solution though. Seriously, and this is, this is, this is something that, okay, I say solution. I have a suggestion. Let's, let's go there. How are we to un- live with our wives in an understanding way if we don't understand our wives? Okay, and, and guys, this message is for me. You just get to hear it. You know, maybe it applies to you. I don't know, but the Lord is needing to, for me to hear it. So how do we understand our wives better? Well, you can extrapolate that on down the line and figure out a lot of those things. But one of the things that the Lord really convicts me of is to, to, to put down or turn off the glowing rectangle 
Somebody used that phrase this week, and I was like, what are you talking about? You know, glowing rectangles that sit here and on our cabinets at home. You know, let's put those aside. Do we... It's okay sometimes to watch that with your wives and you can enjoy a program together, whatever it is, but you don't really get to know them very well. You don't really understand them better in doing that. And so suggestion would be to, to turn those things off. Maybe if you got kids, find a babysitter. Again, talking to myself. And go, well... <laughs> Okay. <laughs> One of the things that I think we should do is 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 this: put put these things aside, spend some focused time. How to, maybe even ask our wife, "How can I understand you better? What can we do? Go to a restaurant, get a babysitter, go to a restaurant, and and not to do any of this stuff so that you get anything in in return, but just how do we understand our wives better? We need to be, if if we're going to live with them in an understanding way. We, we gotta go through this. We gotta, we gotta help, have them help us how to do this better. And Peter and Paul both, when they talk about marriage and husbands, they set the highest standard possible. Don't they? When they talk, when Peter and Paul, especially Paul, when they talk about husbands and wives, specifically husbands, they set the highest standard. I don't think that we can say that one is hard, one role in marriage is harder than the other. I don't think we can say, well, women have it harder to submit to their husband, or I don't think we can say husbands have it harder to love and cherish and honor their wives. I think they're both equally impossible on our own. Because I would ask, is it hard for wives to submit to and respect their husbands? I have no doubt. Is it hard for husbands to love, honor, and cherish their wives in the same way that Jesus does those things for the church? Surely, yeah. But if we have been given new life in Christ, we have also been called to live in this way. And I'll go back to the phrase I've repeated almost every week. God's new people do new things. So whether both spouses are believers here or whether you are the lone believer in your marriage, you are being called by God to do something that you are utterly incapable of doing without his help, without the indwelling spirit living out in you. Husbands, honor your wives, Peter says. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Go sit with mom. Next time you come up here, I'm going to make you say your verse. Peter says, honor your wives, husband, as what? As, as a, the weaker vessel. Now, we have to direct some attention to this this morning, just so there's no understanding, misunderstanding. When Peter uses the term weaker vessel, he does not mean weaker-minded. He does not mean that women are lesser than a man. We know this because Peter follows what he says up with the phrase, they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Sounds similar to what Paul says in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Christ, husbands and wives are equally heirs of the promise. Heirs of life. And yet, there are some 
who take verses like this and verses like Galatians 3.28 and say that there is no difference between men and women. And maybe they don't mean that in the biological sense, but maybe they mean that in the church. And so churches elevate women to pastoral positions, which seems to us to be unbiblical. And they say they use verses like this to prove that. And they say there is no difference between male and female. Now, when Peter says this, when he calls women, he says the weaker vessel, I think it's pretty obvious he's talking about physical strength, the physical capabilities. Now, at one point in our world's history, it might not need to be said. But the day and age in which we live, I think it needs to be said, the body of a man and the body of a woman were made different. Gloriously so. We complement one another so well. Men are physically able to do things that most women are not able to do. And most women are able to do things that no man could ever do. Could ever do. Science proves the differences between men and female, male and female are determined not weeks after, but the moment of fertilization. Chromosomes are set. It's determined at conception. Our ability to determine gender comes in weeks later because we don't have the tools at our disposal to figure out if it's a boy or a girl that early in its life. In fact, most ladies don't even know that they're pregnant that early in, in the, the process. So gender is set at conception. And we cannot in good conscience or in light of Scripture, or even in light of science, say that there is no difference between male and female, or that those genders can be fluid. It is both scientifically unrealistic and morally impossible to agree with what we're being told about all of this today. We have to continue holding firm to the truth while speaking that truth to our neighbor But we cannot forget that we're supposed to speak that truth in love. In just the next couple of verses in 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says that we're going to need to be prepared to make a defense for what we believe, but to do it and deliver it with what? Gentleness and respect. Christians must still speak truth, but we must do it in love. Now, Peter is going to remind us yet again in some of these other verses, verses 8 through 17, that our conduct as those who have been born again ought to be honorable among every group of people. So he's, he's starting maybe more specific with government in the workplace, in our marriages, but he's really moving that circle bigger and he's saying, honor everyone. Everyone ought to see your conduct as believers and be pointed back to the gospel. So we have to share the truth with every person, but we ought to do it with gentleness and respect and love. And if we can't figure out how to do that without getting mad or belligerent when discussing these kinds of issues, regardless of what the view view is of the person that we're discussing it with, if we can't not be mad or belligerent, then we would just probably need to keep our mouth shut for a while. I would just respectfully ask you to keep your mouth shut until you can approach those things with gentleness and respect and love. Finally, the end of verse 7, Peter says that husbands are to honor their wives 
And this last phrase is just kind of wild. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Is that a surprising phrase here to anybody else? I, I feel like it was at first. But if you think about it, I think it makes a lot of sense. Guys, husbands specifically, when you have not been living with your wife in an honoring way, when you have not been honoring her, living with her in an understanding way, how do you feel about your relationship with God? You know. Because I do too. And when my, wife, my relationship with my wife is struggling, that's usually an indication that my relationship with God has been struggling longer. So, just personally, when I feel like I've failed in doing this and being the husband that God has called me to in this way, not only is there strife and difficulty and struggling in my marriage and in our home, but there's strife and struggling in my relationship with God as well. Sometimes it's my, my disobedience to the Lord that would trickle down and cause me to dishonor my wife. And so I think it makes a lot of sense that Peter says it this way. In these moments, I'm especially grateful for the discipline of the Lord. Because guys, if you're anything like me, we can go a really long time with struggle between husband and wife and not do anything about it. Way longer than we should. And if that's the case, what does that do to our prayers? Well, Peter's pretty clear. If we aren't doing this, our prayers are being hindered. That's, that's something that we should certainly take note of. My relationship with my wife has a bearing on God's relationship with me. Guys, husbands, if God has given us a role of authority in our home, and he, and he has, then we ought to be the ones leading our wives and families by example in obeying God's word. Plain and simple. Maybe you're, you're listening and you're not married. Maybe you're too young or you just aren't in a relationship leading to marriage at this point. Um, I would just encourage you with this, and it's going to sound really strange at first. But let me encourage you with this. If God does lead you to marry, praise Him for your spouse's imperfections. That sounds really weird. Stay with me. Be thankful that your spouse doesn't always get it right. Because if they got it always right, then you would be eternally frustrated, or at least in this life, frustrated with the fact that you can't get it right. You love me the way that I'm supposed to be loved, but I can't do it back. Think about how frustrated you would be. So in a sense, praise God for their imperfections. Because as it stands, as far as I've met, I've not met anyone who does this thing perfectly. I've not met any perfect couple. I've met some that understand this a lot better. But no spouse is perfect. And so all any husband or wife can do then is not compare them to other husbands and wives. And I think that's a, a trap that we fall into. And that just keeps kicking the can down the road further. Well, I know they're not in a good place with their wife. We're not that bad, so we're okay. 
You see what I'm saying? And so we just keep kicking that can down the road. We'll deal with it another day when in reality, maybe our prayers are being hindered in the meantime. So we don't, husbands, we don't compare ourselves to other husbands. Now we can look at some and see, man, they really cherish their wife. I want to do that better. Maybe we can look at people like that, but they're not ever going to be a perfect image of it. But who is? Christ. And so we praise God for the imperfections in our, in our wives and in our husbands. And in the process, we praise God for the picture of Jesus and his love for the bride. Because that's all that we need to know about how husbands are to live with, in an understanding way with their wives and honor them. And it's all we need to know about submitting to those in authority over us. Because if you'll remember, in the garden, before his death, Jesus said that very thing to the Father. Your will be done. He submitted to the Father. And so perfect love is displayed by Christ for his bride, the church. And perfect submission is displayed by the Son submitting to the will of the Father. Jesus is our example in all of these things. But he's given husbands and wives different roles in marriage and different roles in the home. But he's given them the same spirit to accomplish those things by. So that's the question. Do you have the spirit of God living in you? Have you been stirred by that spirit this morning to say, I need, I need to get with my wife and understand her in a better way. I need to get with my husband and explain my respect for him in another, again. Maybe we need to do that. It's the spirit of God moving in us. So whether you're married or not, new life, that God has given us, transforms what we do going forward. It transforms it. And Jesus is saying, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Renewing in the sense of submitting yourself more and more to God himself. Will we do that together as husbands and wives in this place? You've heard it said, studies show that the home, families are the hub of society. As families go, so the society goes. It's a lot of pressure, isn't it? Thankfully, we don't do this ourselves. We have the perfect picture of Jesus to look to, and we have the Spirit of God within us to lead us into these things. Let's pray together. Lord, we can't accomplish these things on our own. I readily admit how short I fall, seemingly so quickly, and yet, Lord, not, I don't want to take your grace for granted. God forbid that, Lord. I don't want to continue to sin so that grace can abound. So, Lord, cause your people, specifically husbands and wives, to take heed of this this morning. And it goes right in the face of culture. Even in some Christian circles, it's not taught this way. Lord, but you have given husbands and wives, men and women, unique roles. And you've given them the ability and the capability of submitting themselves in those roles. And so I pray that we would be a people who submits themselves to your word. And then lets it determine how we live. And so, Lord, that might mean some uncomfortable 
adjustments at home in our regular routine, I pray that we would do the hard thing here so that we might be in a relationship, in a home that displays and adorns the gospel for all to see. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.